Last Sunday, we got to see Marsha via um, the internet, and this week, it's great to see Marsha in person, um, although the scenery last week was phenomenal. That was beautiful. Um, so today, we continue with our uh, book of Hebrews in third chapter, and um, the theme for today is, can you believe it? Now, like I said at the beginning of our worship, last week I promised you I would explain a little bit more about what the high priest is. So the high priest was the chief religious official for all of the people of Israel. And um, the high priest uh, presided over the activities of the tabernacle before they had the temple, remember the tent? And then as they built the temple, he presided over the temple the first temple, which was destroyed in 586 BCE, and then the second temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD. So we have the high priest that is linked back to the person of Aaron. Um, in Israel, it is um, widely understood that Aaron was the first high priest. Now, Aaron would have presided over the activities of Israel's worship life uh, via the tent, the tabernacle. So Aaron, uh, being the first, um, was followed by many others. Another one that you may be familiar with the name is Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. He was the high priest during the reign of King David and King Solomon. And so these high priests were very important officials um, in the life of Israel. It, um, they came from the Jewish priestly family, the family of Levites, and um, they all traced their lineage back to Aaron. By the second century BCE, before the common era, before Christ, by the second century, this tradition of being related to Aaron came to an end. After Israel's defeat and exile, Without kings, the role of the high priest became much more of a political position. And so when the high priest would die, the son of the high priest would become the high priest. If they had more than one son, it would be the eldest son. If they had no sons, then it would be the brother, probably much like um, the royal lineage of, of England. And, and so you have all these um, different traditions, but the one that keeps it focused is that this is the religious official for all of Israel. A few of the kings were actually, or a few of the priests were actually removed by, by a, a king or two and replaced. Now that was a bold move, um, you, you know, because you were going against what God had put into place years and years ago. The vestments um, I found really fascinating for the high priest. And so let me begin by just telling you that um, it's, he's supposed to be barefoot. Um, when, when the high priest was dressed, he did not wear shoes because he, there, they wanted nothing to separate the high priest from touching the creation of God. And so he was in, in the temple, whenever he was about his work, he was always barefoot. 
At the very foundation is the white linen robe that is white to symbolize the atonement or the forgiveness of sins. And so the, um, the, the white robe um, is the foundational layer. That is then covered by the blue robe, the blue sky color, and that is uh, a, a remembrance that the Lord God is the Lord of the universe over all the skies and seas, um, over everything. The, uh, the next piece is called the ephod. That's the multicolored piece of robe. And uh, the ephod had a breastplate that was also attached to it. And the breastplate had 12 gemstones. And so they didn't have the big crowns with the gemstones. They had the breastplate. And the, each gemstone then was carved with one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when the high priest wore this, the, the symbolism is that he was bearing, um, carrying the weight of the people's sins with him. And he had all the tribes listed on those gemstones because it was an inclusive. There was no one excluded from the people of Israel as the high priest uh, bore their burdens. And so the, the intricate colors, there's uh, many behind that. You can go read more about that in the Old Testament. Um, it's woven. It's, uh, it's a beautiful uh, piece of art as well as as an ephod, a, a vestment. Now, on the top, you have a white turban, which was common for men in that era. And then um, along the turban, then you have a gold crown. And the gold, the gold crown is um, symbolic of the sins of Israel that are taken away from them and um, We'll talk about how that's done a little bit later. But um, how the sins of Israel are taken away from them and replaced um, with um, God's forgiveness and mercy. And so you have the, the gold band um, that is a reminder of, of God's uh, love and mercy for the people of Israel. So that was what the high priest would wear. The theological um, influence here um, is important uh, because he was the representative of all of Israel on behalf of all of Israel to God. His sins, the high priest's sins, are regarded as belonging to the people of Israel. So when he went to the altar, he went bearing not his sins, but the sins of all the people of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, um, we may know it as Yom Kippur, if you have Jewish friends who celebrate, um, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the chief high priest, he alone, entered the temple to make the sacrifice on behalf of Israel to wipe away all their sins. They would have two goats, and um, the, goat, the first goat that was being offered to God as a sacrifice um, would be slaughtered by the high priest on the altar. And then the second one, the high priest would take the sins of Israel and place it on the head of the goat. Remember the band, the gold band, removing the sins of Israel and 
replacing it with the, with the gold band, the love and the mercy of God. So as, as the priest would put his hands on the goat, um, he would transfer all of those sins that he was carrying to the goat. And then the goat would be led out, the second goat would be led out into the wilderness and would wander away with all of the sins of Israel on its back. And that's why we call it the scapegoat. <laughs> so the scapegoat is bearing the sins for that year of all of Israel. Now, the high priest, when he offered these sacrifices, um, he did so um, as a representative of the people. And because he was the chief high priest, they wanted the representative to be one of strength, one who was handsome, and one who is filled with wisdom, which explains why I'm your priest. <laughs> well, maybe not. It may create more confusion about why I'm your priest, right? Um, so if you want to read more about this, you can read it in Leviticus 16. Uh, verses 6 through 10, it goes into great explanation about uh, the sacrifice of the goat um, and then the transfer of the sins to the second goat uh, being led out to the wilderness. So the first thing that I found interesting is that when we read this, we get two references to the high priest. One was where we ended last week. Let me take a quick review of that. Uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, it was necessary for him, for Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. So that was right towards the end of our reading last week. And then the preacher picks it up again this week in verse 1 of chapter 3. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be, now it says, God's messenger and high priest. I'm going to create a little um, disagreement because it's not literally what it means. It is that he came as God's, not, not God's messenger, God's apostle. It's literally apostle and high priest. So that's what I found interesting, was that he would be described, in a sense, as an apostolic high priest. When I think of the apostles, I think of the 12. Well, then it became 11, and then it went back to 12, right? Is that what you think of, Jesus and his 12 disciples, who he often referred to as his apostles? And so, um, how does Jesus become an apostle? Was he one of the 12? No, he wasn't. Let's say that what the preacher is trying to convey to us here is that Jesus was the apostle of the apostles. Now, if you want to know what apostle literally means, it means the one who is sent, the sent one. And um, so where they got messenger, I don't know. Um, I, I disagree with that translation. Jesus is the one that was sent by God 
to be our high priest, the sent one. Now, in the early church, the ranks of the apostles grew a little bit because the understanding of apostleship grew. In the early church, you were an apostle if you witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, if you performed miracles by the power of God through the Holy Spirit, and, um, and thirdly, I'm forgetting the third piece here, um, well, you were chosen and called by God to be an apostle through Jesus or by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that explains why Paul could refer to himself as an apostle, right? I mean, Paul was not one of the 12, but he certainly witnessed the resurrection of Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was called by Jesus on that road to Damascus, and then he was able to perform some miracles. And so, you know, that is a good explanation of how Paul could be called an apostle. So Jesus is the apostle of the apostles. Whether we're looking at the 12 or whether we're looking at the expanded number, Jesus is the apostle of the apostles. He is the one that was sent, truly sent, from God. You see, we're sent to one another. Jesus was sent to us. And in that sending, what we experience then is... um, is, is the hallmarks of what Jesus' purpose was in coming to bring us faithfulness and mercy. Bring us faithfulness and mercy. Both things these apostles learned from their teacher, their rabbi. They learned from Jesus how to be faithful. They learned from Jesus how to be merciful. And so if there was two words that could describe this early church, it was their faithfulness and it was their love and acts of mercy towards other people. This week and next week, we'll be taking a deeper look at the faithfulness aspect of Jesus. It's when we get to chapter 5 that that the preacher then moves us into uh, the mercy of Jesus. But for today and and, and next week, we'll be looking at faithfulness. The reason why he is focused on faithfulness is that the congregation that he is sending this sermon to has drifted away from the church, from the worship life. They have neglected the core of who they are, their identity as Christians and as a people of God. So the congregation is being reminded in this sermon from the preacher that Jesus is the only apostle and the high priest of our confession. Our confession is really our faith. And so Jesus is the one who was sent to be our high priest of the confession. So our confession has two components to it. It has an active part. It's our acts of worship and praise, like you are here doing this morning. And so we, we pray, we worship, we, we glorify God. These are all acts of worship. But the confession is also 
about content. It's about what we believe. And the foundational piece of the content is that Jesus was sent here to suffer, to be crucified, to be raised again from the dead, and to bring us new life through the kingdom of God. The problem that the preacher is addressing is not so much the content as the act. The people are falling away from the church, from confessing their faith through prayer and through worship. Now last week we had a comparison of Jesus with the angels. As the preacher moves us into this theme of faithfulness for today, we have a new comparison, and that is between Jesus and Moses. Jesus is faithful to God just as Moses was faithful to God when he served God's whole house. But the preacher is reminding us that that Jesus' faithfulness is greater and that he is worthy of more glory and praise than even Moses, even as great as Moses is. And this is the quote that he uses. Just as the builder of the house, <coughs> excuse me, just as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. That got me thinking, you know, because we're right along Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard. And I was thinking, you know, I know the name Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard. I know the style of architecture, you know, those flat roofs and uh, very clean lines. And, and, and I know a lot about this architect, even though I've never even really studied it or anything. But you just learn from things that you read about him. But if you asked me to point out a house that he actually built, I couldn't point one out. And when I thought about it, you know, the street's named after Frank Frank Lloyd Wright. It's not named after a house, you know, 3207 East um, Agave Street. It's not named that. It's named Frank Lloyd Wright Boulevard because they, like we, Remember the builder of the house and not the house. And so what the comparison is saying is that Jesus is the builder of the house. And therefore, we remember Jesus. Moses served in God's house. He was at the house. He could tell you the address. But Jesus is over God's house. Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son. Now, this does not diminish Moses' role. Um, Let me take a look here at Numbers 12, verses 7 and 8, because this will highlight for us how important Moses' role is. But not with my servant Moses, of all my house. He is the one I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. Remember, face to face. So why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? God's not pleased when they criticize his servant. He wants the house to respect his servant. And he wants the house, the larger house that we're now a part of, 
to be faithful to the Son. And that's the comparison that he seems to be making here. The house that the preacher is referring to is the house of Israel, but it is also the house of Gentile followers. So the house has been expanded, not just with Israel, but now with the household of Gentile believers and followers of the Christ. And this is, this is the censure here. This is the thing that really caught me. Because what the preacher is saying to his audience and to us is that you are God's house. If we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ, we are God's house. Think about that. Can you believe it? You and I are part of God's house. We are God's house, you and me. What did we do to deserve it? I guess the Olympics have been going on. Has anybody been watching that? There's been some news about the Olympics. You know, if you're watching online, send on your chat uh, function, tell me who your favorite Olympian is. I'd like to know that. You can tell each other if you want for just a second here. T turn to your neighbor and tell them who your favorite Olympian is right now. One of the biggest surprises of the Olympics that I've had is that Russia's there. <laughs> um, last I knew, Russia was banned from the Olympics because they got caught up in this big doping scandal. They had been doping most of their athletes, and so their athletes weren't clean and were winning um, unfairly. And the last thing that I remember from the Olympic Committee was that uh, Russia was banned from participating in the Olympics. But there's all kinds of Russians there. Matter of fact, they're in third place in terms of the total, the total um, medal count. And so I began to think, well, what's going on? What I realized was that Russia was banned from the Olympics, the state of Russia, because it was a systemic program within their structure, within their systems. But the Olympic Committee didn't feel it was fair to condemn all of the Russian athletes because many of them were not supportive of it or did not participate in it. And so what they allowed to happen was that the Russian athletes could come and participate as the Russian Olympic Committee. And so like when they win, the Russian flag doesn't fly, the Russian national anthem doesn't play, the Olympic theme plays and the, the Olympic flag flies. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's a little irritating. That sounds like grace to me. I mean, I'm all for grace when it's good for me. But, you know, these are the Russians. Well, grace can bite both ways. And what the preacher is trying to tell us is that we are called as followers of Jesus to be faithful, to follow Jesus in his faithfulness. Now, 
this might be a form of earthly grace, this Russian thing, but it does remind us, even though we may not deserve it, God has built a house. And inside that house, guess who's there? You're going to be upset with this one. I'm there. So this house is going to include people that I might not think deserve to be there. Because God wants his house built for all. For all those who came and followed him from the house of Israel and all of those who came and followed him from the house of the Gentiles, he wants to celebrate with the whole house. Can you believe it? That Jesus oversees our house of faith? Can you believe that Jesus oversees New Covenant Lutheran Church? Like that early church at times, we have neglected to worship God. Like that early church, we too have fallen away on, at times from the house of faith. And like that early church, we have allowed our conflicts to drive wedges into the house of faith. We are also afflicted, afflicted like that early church was, suffering. We're afflicted by a global pandemic that won't seem to, to go away. We have lost friends, loved ones. We have lost jobs and businesses. We have even lost our hope. So the question that the preacher seems to be driving at here is can you believe that Jesus came to bring us hope? Can you believe that Jesus came to bring you hope? Just like Moses dealt with the Israelites' faithlessness in the wilderness, this preacher is asking us, how will we fare? He quotes Psalm 95 and uses this as, um, as a platform in a sense to explain God's faithfulness even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of the people. This is what the Holy Spirit says. This is verse 7. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Jesus, the son, suffered. He died, and he was raised again from the dead in order that you might have life eternal life, in order that you might have new life today, in order that Jesus might shake you up a bit and change your life, transform you. Can you believe it? Jesus has come for you to build a house with you. Can you believe it?